Hey, Dan. Hello, Steve. You beat me to it that time. I know. I wanted to. I wanted to. Why? Make, I'm asserting myself this morning. Uh, I am reaching for the stars. Keep your feet planted firmly on the ground, though. So what have you been up to? Haven't listened to American Top 40 in a long time. Yeah, Casey Kasem? Yeah, he, was the, he used to say that at the end of all his shows. So they got a new host now, right? I don't know. Do they exist? They might be keeping him alive in a jar. I don't know. <laughs> no, he's gone. Uh, I've been listening because uh, we're babysitting our grandson as often as we can to a lot of songs like uh, Do Your Ears Hang Low and oh, yeah. Old MacDonald over and over and over again. So you needed and, to uh, clean the ears out a little bit. Yeah, I like the Tigger song, you know, from Winnie the Pooh. So what's going on with It's going to be great. <laughs> what's happening with Top 40 these days? Boy, I'm clueless. I have been clueless for a long time. Yeah, really? Yeah, I yeah, would not be the person that you would want to take to a trivia match where they were asking questions about pop culture. I departed from pop radio, not... You know, my heart, I still listen to modern music and like, definitely I'll run into stuff and I'll think that's really cool. But, pretty, you know, I heard, go ahead. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much in the 90s, that's when I backed out as far as me listening to it every day and knowing who's who and all that. I'm going to venture to say that it had something to do with having children. Yeah. Well, I hadn't had children yet. Oh. Absolutely not for another 15 years or so. Oh. But, <laughs> okay. But Actually, yeah. It, you I know, a lot of dulcimer either. music. I was listening to Irish music. I was listening to world music, Indian, you know, Arabic, all kinds of stuff. And I, I think I even started to like popular music more at 2000 forward. Most of what was on the radio in the 90s, I didn't like at all. But now I realize listening back, I did like a lot of what's you know, referred to as alternative music back then, the stuff they were playing on college radio. But most of my head was in dulcimer and folk music and all that kind of stuff. The brain's a pretty complex thing. And when we start talking about what we like and what we don't like, it's, it's hard for us to separate it from the times that we were going through, you know, and just where we were as far as our mental development is concerned. In the 90s, I'm, I'm not even sure exactly how old you are. How old were you in the 90s? I was 71. <laughs> I've been aging backwards. Yeah. Your prefrontal cortex doesn't even finish developing until, you know, you're 20 or so. It's actually a little later for men. Right. Well, and that's, was... and wait, wait, and that's the part of your brain that inhibits you from doing things, which is interesting. And that's why teenagers so often don't seem to have any inhibitions. You know, some do, but it, it's they'll make bad decisions because the part of the brain that says, wait a second, you need to think that through. But it's also the same part of the brain that gets excited about music. And what you like during that time of your life sticks often for a long time because you had a bit of a dopamine addiction that your brain releases when you're listening to it. It's fantastic stuff. Well, that's interesting because if I think of what music is uh, is. If I think of the music I'm really geared for down deep, it's 80s pop music, you know, and that's my childhood. Last night I put on uh, 80s pop. It was like a channel on one of these internet radio stations. 
and let it run all night. And when I woke up this morning, I was just hearing some great tunes. And it actually gives me this feeling mm-hmm. like I'm home, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Dulcimer. There's some of these kids that have come along where I think their their musical obsession through you know some of their foundational years was dulcimer, you know. Yeah. Well, in in my own story, I the first hammer dulcimer that I ever heard that I really knew I was listening to it was Malcolm Douglas off of his Jogging the Memory album. And sitting here in my studio slash office yesterday just doing work. Uh, the random playlist popped up one of those songs off of that CD, which isn't a cut that anybody plays. And I was taken back, and that was the coolest sound. And often these days, because I hear a lot of dulcimer music, and sometimes my ears actually get tired because of the magazine. You know, it's not necessarily what I want to hear. But I listened to that, and I was like, whoa, wait a second. That's awesome sauce. (laughs) And I started listening closely. And it really is. Now, I'm aware that if you listen to that same thing, you might not go, wow, that's the coolest thing ever. But because it's hitting all kinds of targets within me, I'm like, that's the coolest thing ever. So it's still, the thing that got me excited about playing dulcimer still gets me excited today, and that's exciting in and of yeah, itself. I have no doubt about that. My, if I think of my favorite records of all time, and there's not many at all, my favorite one is the David Schnaufer Dulcimer Player Deluxe CD, which was a combination of two previous cassettes, Dulcimer Player and then Dulcimer Deluxe. When I hear that stuff, man, that takes me back almost more than anything. And Do you and, have the cassettes? No, I'm, I'm not. A, actually, somebody gave me one or two of them. I remember there was there was uh, one or two tracks that didn't make it to the CD. I think that's why I liked it. But for me, my mom won a CD player at her company picnic, which was in Kings Island, and uh, just north of Cincinnati, Ohio. There were thousands of these employees at this picnic, you know, company picnic. That one of the prizes was a portable Sony CD player. And I didn't know anyone who had a CD player. <laughs> and I remember I got uh, Shadow Facts. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know who they were. Uh, folk songs for a nuclear village. And then I got Sting, Nothing Like the Sun. And I, and I, and I think I got Kataro, Something of oh, a yeah, Spirit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think roughly... Maybe the fourth CD I got was David Schnaufer, Dulcimer Player Deluxe. And so, wow. for, but for me in that time to hear that pristine audio, you know, I'd been listening to cassettes and records my whole life. I felt like I, as a young budding musician, I was like, wow, I've really got the goods here, you know. And and that David Schnaufer music, that's some of the clearest the first clear music I ever really listened to. So it's, there's so much about those years that excite me. Hmm. The home recording revolution hasn't necessarily made for, for better recordings. No, I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, I, I'm going to say something I remember, and then if you can take us back a little further, I'd appreciate it. But when I was in high school, um, 
my buddy Darren had a band called Simple Aggression. It was a heavy metal band. And they invited me to the studio. They were cutting a demo tape. And they um, they recommended I bring some stuff and maybe I could like make an intro to one of their pieces or whatever. And I brought a four track and a keyboard and all kinds of stuff. But that was the first time I'd ever been in a studio like that. And Fos it was... Tex. Well, I, I brought my Yamaha MT100. Okay. <laughs> I think it was called. But uh, the studio was probably the nicest studio in Northern Kentucky. Group Effort, it was called. And uh, it's your it's your classic studio with all the stuff. Um, and back then, those guys were shelling out some serious money to be in that studio. And that four-track I had, you could actually do some pretty great stuff with it if you knew what you were doing but still nobody was home recording for the most part so the money though it was just there's no way i could have been in the studio what was it like 10 years before that well i'm gonna use a, in a parallel example and it's what was going on in radio at the time if you wanted to work as a DJ or as an announcer or whatever, but if you wanted to be on the air at a radio station, you had to have a license and <laughs> you had to take a test and right. understand, you know, some at least elementary engineering principles about what it is you're doing and how, you know, what's going on with this. If you wanted to be, uh, if you wanted to have a radio station, you had to have an engineer around all the time and things were constantly being checked. And that sort of attitude was what was happening in the studios as well, in that there's a, I, I think there was more depth of knowledge. Now, people go to, go to school and, and learn all that kind of thing as well today, but you can have money and no background and be able to buy, you know, better stuff than what the Beatles albums were recorded on, you know, and that stuff stands up so well now. Vastly but, better stuff. Ex with the exception of the rooms. And that's what people don't spend money on in their home studios. You might make it look nice or think, you know, I've made it really dead. But there's a sweetness that comes from an engineered space that takes an engineer to do. Right. Uh, yeah. And that you don't get as much anymore. And you can hear it. So now um, I've, we both hey, wait, have. Hey, wait, wait. I'm going to finish. I'm going to correct what I just said. You do get that. It's just that there's so much more out there that doesn't get that. Right. And it tends to be in the dulcimer world and in the folk world that there sometimes could be an attitude that, well, it's folk music. We don't have to pay, you know, pristine. We don't have to pay attention to every absolute detail. It's about the take. And I get that. It is about the take. But if you're paying a bunch of money to go into a studio like you talked about a few minutes ago, the odds are you're, you're re really ready for it. You've spent the time to get ready because you know that it's expensive what you're doing right yeah, now. Yeah, it was like a filtering process. That's right. For most folks, if you were in a studio of that caliber, you'd probably really spend a lot of time investing in your technique and your delivery and your songs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I remember a, a dagger through my heart when I had uh, <laughs> back in my old studio, which was pretty good. It was an engineered space. Uh, hired a musician to come in and lay some tracks down, and who's good studio musician. Not he's a, he's a little socially tough 
to get along with this particular person, but good studio musician. And I said, Hey, I want you to do this and this and this. And he said, man, you're, you mean, we aren't going to play it at the same time. And I said, no, no, I just want to track it. <laughs> and he goes, Norman Blake would just be shaking his head at this right now. <laughs> Norman's alive. Norman's not from a long time ago. He's, he's got a gig coming up this weekend, but you know, it's changed, and we do sometimes rely on the multi-track to save us. Yeah, and I mean, we could go back and forth and send like a couple of complaining old dudes, but um, there is also, I'll tell you, you know, in some ways, and I mean uh, across the world, there have been some fantastic sounding recordings made in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what we're saying is, and, and, and don't hear this as totally negative, but at some point about around year 2000, uh, the computers, the software started replacing actual, you know, gear, expensive gear. And we just started to see a whole lot of amateur sound engineers. And I think that's great, but what it led to, and I'm not saying this is good or bad as far as the music goes, it led to an explosion, an absolute explosion of new albums, or you, well, let's call them CDs. So it was like, used to, if somebody said they had, a, 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 they had recorded an album, that was a big deal. It was like, well, I want a copy of that. Mm-hmm. But, but if you've got 500 friends who all play music, and all of them in the last two or three years just came out with CDs, that's almost too much music to ingest. Right. And um, so it's kind of, it's it's created a noise in a sense. And I feel this on iTunes and stuff like that. There's, or Amazon regarding books. There's so much stuff that I need a little help to know what I should listen to. But um I guess in the dulcimer world, we've got a lot of CDs I'm sure I haven't listened to out there. You you maybe have as as the magazine dude. Yeah, I hear I hear a lot. And I have them and uh when we took over the the magazine from Maddie, Neil Walters gave me all the CDs, you know, that he had done reviews on prior to that. So, we have a pretty extensive collection. And I think that thing that you're talking about is reflected in that. And there are also concepts in going into record that have to do with, well, are you trying to create a, a, a project that makes a new statement of some kind, or are you trying to just archive what's happening right now with you musically so that, so that it exists? And I think the standards on those two things can be different, but if you're, if you are, um, I'm trying to think the, studio band uh steely dan right you know if you ever watch the documentary on what went into making the asia album which i think is one of the best albums that was my first steely dan recording oh it's just just incredible astounding yeah and they i mean they were there was so much that went into that that wasn't an archival recording that was them saying we're going to use the recording studio to create something that's never been done before right a masterpiece right well, I don't guess they had any guarantee that it would be, but it turns out it was. Because uh, there's stuff that 
people put a lot of time into that's still not that good. But see, compared to that, I've got my mom here, and and there's things we've recorded together. We just did an online show last week, and I've got this wonderful video documenting me and my mom hanging out and jamming. And that's so valuable to me. Yeah. You'll listen to that over. Okay. I like that better than Steely Dan. But there is a difference between that and actually setting out to to create a great piece of art. Although I think I might disagree with myself if I listen to myself too much. Yeah. What is it? uh, Talking about music is like dancing about architecture. That's funny. (laughs) Someone said once. It does. It becomes complex at some point. And music... I, you don't want to get all hypercritical of it because it stops being much fun then. You can even make it, when you're spending a lot of time in the studio and really focusing on f- trying to hear what's working and what's not working and then discern why that is, you sort of tune your brain into doing that. It makes listening to music not be much fun at all. Well, having said yeah. that, let me see if you can get hypercritical about music for a second. So since you've heard all these CDs... For a good while here. I mean, you have to select what's going to go on the sampler CD, and so you're... you're actually, That's not really true. They yeah? generally select. They generally select. I'll let people do that. Who's they? The people who submit material. What happens in DPN, are these are not critical reviews. Right. You're, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's a good idea in our community. Yeah, but don't you... You kind of listen and you'll think this is a hot track and you'll email them back and say, I'd really, this one's really good. I'd like to put this on there or something like that. Yeah. Every now and that happens quite often. Yes. So let me just. But I don't know what people to think just because they don't get that note that I don't think that what they sent was a hot track. Right. But every now and then you hear something and you, and you go, okay, this is, this is exciting. It's important you know? to, to put it in there. You know? Right. Um, well, forget about the music uh, as far as technique and whether they're you know but what what are some of the biggest things amateur engineers amateur sound engineers could improve on don't use your pickup it doesn't matter if you think that's the coolest thing ever and you play with it live all the time maybe mix that in there a little bit do not rely on the pickup as the main sound. Now, that's the you're not talking to, like if somebody's going for an electric guitar kind of sound, that's different. But you're talking about using a, a pickup like a Bags or a Fishman instead of the acoustic sound of the instrument. That's right. It's harder to get a good mic'd sound, but it's almost impossible to get a good just straight pickup sound. So what if somebody and, has a bad, they've got one bad microphone, it costs $45, Versus they shouldn't their bags be recording off of that. They shouldn't be recording, or they should rent a microphone. But you can even make a a bad mic sound better than a than an even a really good pickup. And I'm not anti pickups. I think we need them. You know, there are times when they're the best thing when you're on uh, many stage situations. And there's different kind of pickups. And I just want to throw this in really fast. Um, Jerry Rockwell. Stephen K. Smith, they both, they don't use a, a piezo type, I guess is what it's called, like a Bags or Fishman. They often use like an electric guitar style pickup. And that takes on a rich, that, dip, awesome quality, but they're not trying to s- 
They're, they're going for that. But we're talking right. about these, the bags and the fishmen. What are they? Why do they sound? They sound to me like this. Bzzz. Oh, I don't know. I think they're just, they have to have a place that creates a, a wolf tone by their very nature. You know, they're just, it's the, they're going to pick up thump or they're going to pick up honky sounds every now and then. And if you might not even know that that's what it is that's making you not like the way something sounds unless you've really looked for it using electronics, I mean, looking for the EQ, looking at the the spectrum of sound, you might notice that there's the spike. And then when you start to go to that spike, you can really hear it. But it's like... Uh, Guys like you and and Aaron and uh, you know I'm sure Tall and I'm just trying to think of uh, and, and Butch and uh, I'm just trying to think of Hammer Dulc- Mountain Dulcimer players that I've seen be really fussy about little bitty nuances in their tone. Uh, those kinds of things get amplified or even created anew when because often when you're playing live, here's the deal: when you're playing live the person in the room can hear what's coming from your box. And so that covers over a multitude of tonal sins, you know, <laughs> coming from that pickup. But when you record with just that thing, you're, that's not good <laughs> because it's just making bad sounds. Let's keep going here for a minute. Give me another one. Yeah. Something else. I'm feeling bad. Well, I, I think we need to stick to the pickup for a minute. I think you need to... Um, Understand that if you must use your pickup or if you want to use your pickup effectively, you need to know what it does well, and that is it's a proximity microphone. It amplifies these low, warm tones, which are a good part, but you have to understand that it's also doing some bad stuff in there, and you have to EQ them based on the rest of the instrument is sounding, and it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. It's just not. You have to have good ears. And then the engineer has to have good ears. The engineer needs to be testing her ears or his ears well, sometimes, to, to see what frequencies are there. Sometimes what happens is somebody has, the musician has got, let's say, um, bad ears or they maybe even have hearing aids. When they first hear their dulcimer with a pickup through an amp, it actually to them sounds better than what they're used to hearing. They hear more of it and there's probably a, a richness to it and so it gives them a confidence and it makes them think, you know, if I'm going to make a recording, I want to sound like that makes me feel. But hmm. it's that's why you got to have help. I think you got to have somebody listening, somebody with good yeah. ears, somebody with trained ears, even if it's well, that co- a little bit. Well, that goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, and I still think it's true. You're better off going into a studio uh, I mean, you need to know what it is you want your instrument to sound like. So it's always good. Like you said, that schnau- that Schnaufer recording means so much to you, the way it sounds. It's good to take that into an engineer and say, this is the way I want my dulcimer to sound. And engineers are, you know, I mean, if they do it a lot, they're used to going, oh, okay, here's what we need to yeah, do Yeah, that's do that. good. Come on now, give me another one. What's when you listen to records and you think, man, you know, good for them, but it would have been maybe nice to hear them with a team of of some more experienced engineers. What's what's something else you hear that stands out? 
I think people are not, well, you know what I'm going to say, Steve. It's, it's bad groove. Bad groove. You're not, you're not ready to record. Okay, preparation. Yeah. Preparation as if you're actually recording. You said this in the last podcast. Record yourself a lot. And then record, if you're going to record with somebody, you need to record the two of you or the three of you a lot so that you can see what's happening. And <clears throat> I think we've had this conversation before. The number one problem I hear with any kind of ensemble playing is mixed swing. Oh, yeah. Very varying degrees of swing. Oh, that's really big, and we don't have to go deep into that, but some of the people are using straight eighths, one and two and three and four and... And then some of them are swinging, sometimes heavily, one and two and three right. and four. And, and there is a little room for some tension between differences in that, but it's, it's very subtle. And typically, in a group of people, you'll have some heavily swinging, some not at all. It's that kind of stuff. You know, Jerry Rockwell had this awesome advice for um, Molly McCormick. Um, she wanted to get into recording. She wanted to do some records. I, I think this was 10 years ago, roughly. And he, he told her, look, I'm not saying you should learn how to be an engineer. I'm not telling you to, to learn how to record, folks. But I'm going to recommend you get a really simple multi-track recording device and just get your feet wet. Just start hearing yourself, play along with yourself, maybe on two or three tracks. Just get roughly familiarized with the process. And then after that, she did a number of records, but I thought that was good advice from him. Yeah. Putting your, if you see a video of, if you could see a video of that uh, Schnaufer recording being done, okay? If you could see it, if you could see where the microphone was placed. That doesn't mean if you took that same microphone and placed it in the same relative position to where on your instrument that it's going to sound as good as that one did. Right. Because there's a bunch of other things that go into this that have to do with technique, you know, the way the way he's playing. The room, as we mentioned early on, is huge. The way the, uh, the EQ chain worked all the way out, the way the thing was mastered, uh, I think... It's really good to have a standard like that and always listen to that standard. But sometimes sometimes you're just like, I don't know how they did that. And <laughs> it's really hard sometimes, you know. My advice to somebody who's never done any recording, if you've put all your time into playing that instrument and getting, you know, being a better player, understand that if you're going to want to get into recording, it's an entirely different hobby. And I really think, you know, if you want to learn about recording, fine, but go ahead and find somebody who's made recording their hobby for years and just knock one out with them. And at least that would give you a good start as you're at home playing with microphones and stuff. It at least would give you something to hear. Well, I think I'd be a better musician today if I'd never learned anything about recording. None of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you shouldn't have brought that up because... <laughs> we, we were going to wrap this up, but that's a really good point. We were just saying at the beginning here how expensive it was to go into a good studio with experienced engineers. 
you started learning, didn't you? Because you wanted oh, high quality we, recordings, but you didn't have the money. Yeah, I was to prior go to somewhere. that. I was in I was in radio, and we put in studios, and and so I'd been doing that. I've done it for a long time. See, Still I doesn't make I, me an expert at it. I went to school for it, which certainly doesn't make me an expert at it. But I originally really got into all this because I needed it done, and I didn't have the money to get somebody else to do it. Yeah, but my stuff that I think is pretty good that I've recorded is is only okay. I know a masterful recording when I hear it. And I, while I've had, I've got good mics. The mic I'm talking into right now is a good microphone. It's a $1,200 mic, uh, and it's great. But it's not, even if I had four of these. So here's an example, and wow, we're running out of time. If I had, let's say I had six of these microphones, it's an AKG C414, wonderful mic. But a good engineer knows you don't want six of those because even this microphone has its own coloring characteristics. And if you used it over and over on every instrument, you would then be creating a sonic signature that's going to start to become obnoxious. So that's why when you go into a studio, yeah, they've got microphone closets and they... Mix them up for multiple reasons. So there's just a lot to know and takes a lot of money. So are, if you were thinking of getting facial surgery, you would want to find, <laughs> you would want to figure out who's got a good track record of making a pretty face out of an old man. And then you would go to those people. So I guess with sound engineering, <laughs> don't just run with somebody. Actually, find yeah. you want to find an engineer, and you want to listen to some of their projects, and you want to be impressed by their work. and And I think that would be a. Good I thing would to say, do. yeah, yeah, but but my test would be, I would take something to them that was sonically possible with the instrument that I play. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And I would hand them this, and I would say, can you make my instrument sound like this one? That's really important, because they'll use that as a reference, hopefully, throughout the project. Yeah. Hey, we just, uh, we're done. We're so done. I'll see you later. Bye. Bye.